welcome to this month's Cab Chat Podcast. I'm Dr. Mindy Waite, and we have with us Dr. Jessica Lockhart. Hello, everybody. And this month, we also have expert guests on Dr. Sue McDonald, who is a certified applied animal behaviorist. And we don't have that many people who are experts, I would say, specifically in the, uh, or especially in the, the horse area. And so I think many of you will be very excited to hear that Dr. McDonald is the head of the equine behavior program at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Veterinary Medicine. Hi, Sue. Hello. <laughs> and let me just tell you, Sue, so today you have sent us five cases, five of your most recent cases that came to you for equine behavior And I'm very excited on multiple levels. One is because there are always people who are interested in becoming, um, you know, behaviorists, especially those with horses. And I think your cases will provide a really interesting insight into like, what's the, what's a day like for, um, for someone who does this for a living before we get into the cases themselves, I know that you're sort of in like a specialized area at the, you know, at at, uh, University of Pennsylvania. So can you just tell us like a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the setup that you have there? Sure. I started out studying human psychology back in the 1970s and was at a uh, undergraduate school that had quite a bit of animal behavior work. So I got, I took all of that. I, I came from a farm background and I was very Um, Actually, I was quite expert as a teenager at training show cattle. And so I was fascinated because I had done a lot of behavior modification. I was really fascinated to learn learn the academic um, side of all of that. So um, even though my degree was in human psychology uh, or just general psychology undergraduate, um, I took every little bit of uh, animal behavior that I could and the, the folks at this uh, small liberal arts college actually had uh, the right here in the Philadelphia area with uh, all the drug companies, and they were doing a lot of learning models for use um, for application with the pharmaceutical companies who were testing things like simple anxiolytics and whatever. So I had that introduction. And then um, at the master's level, again, back in those days, there weren't programs, even here in this university-rich East Coast area, there were not programs specifically in animal behavior. So my master's was, again, in a psychology department. But by good fortune, my next-door neighbor, we were sharing babysitting. She was going to graduate school, and I was too. Her husband worked here at the vet school at the University of Pennsylvania, and he, um, one day I was grumbling to him that in order to get my master's animal research done, I was going to be looking at um, sexually dimorphic fish and oh. as, as a model of neuroendocrine control of um, sexual behavior. And um, the laboratory was going to be closed down for renovations and it was going to be much delayed. So he heard me talking to his wife about this and <clears throat> I got home and I got a telephone call from him. He said, what the heck are you looking at sexual behavior in fish for when veterinary medicine knows so little about behavior and, and sexual behavior? He was a reproduction specialist and he at the time was working with a multi-million dollar thoroughbred stallion who wasn't getting his act together in the breeding <laughs> shed. I did my master's thesis with them on... Uh, some very basic work in um, 
sexual behavior in horses and just um, developing the, the norms and the, the terminology and that sort of thing. And then they invited me to stay on to do a PhD and then a postdoc. And wow. I got huge NIH funding. This was back when people didn't erection or ejaculation in public. And um, also the time when uh, childhood diabetics or spinal cord injured young men were um, surviving to the point where they wanted a reasonable quality of life. So um, NIH was interested in animal models. At the time, they had been the dog and the rat. And the horse actually is an excellent model for humans <laughs> compared to the rat and the dog. So um, they funded uh, the general theme of that research for many years was wow. the physiology and pharmacology of sexual function, including libido, sexual behavior, arousal, and response in horses as a model for men. And I have never left the university. Nice. And so tell me a little bit, again, I know at, at, at Pennsylvania, you certainly will have some sort of unique setup because it sounds like you're, you're in an academic setting. You're also associated with, you know, veterinary medicine. So tell me a little bit about what that looks like. So we do, I, I, my uh, academic home is in what's called the section of reproduction and behavior. Um, it, we took on the name behavior, but I do some quite a bit of um, stallion work that while it, it may have something to do with behavior, I'm also have expertise in, in reproductive physiology, sperm evaluation, those sorts of things. So um, that's why my physical location is still in that unit. And we collaborate with all the other services. So the sports medicine and the neurology, the surgical group. And um, I also do a lot of teaching. So um, on the the side of uh, safe handling and and low stress handling uh, and care of of horses. So that I teach to the veterinary students, the staff, the the house officers and, and continuing education. So I have a very a big variety of different activities. <laughs> it's never, it's never a dull, dull period. Um, even during COVID, we were, um, of course, jumped into um, a lot more teaching. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Those of us c- who could do distance teaching picked up a lot of things. So nice. And so then when you have a behavior case, like before we get into these behavior cases, just to set the context for people of like some of the resources that you have available to you, you know, is it accurate to say if a behavior case comes in, like, obviously, you're the expert, but you have maybe not at your disposal, but you have pretty nearby a variety of, you know, veterinary colleagues who can assist with identifying right. you know, physiological issues. Right. Absolutely. So the cases that I see, about half of them come are referred directly to reproduction behavior, either specifically for me or to a team of one of the reproduction clinicians each of whom have their kind of specialty. And so a team will be, the case will come into that team and then we will reach out to the other services in the hospital as we, we feel would be useful. And the other half of the cases are actually referred into the hospital services, either to sports medicine or medicine and or surgery and those folks will start working on the case and then reach out to reproduction and behavior or specifically behavior um, and, and get us involved. So the point is that there's, there always has to be one service that's sort of managing and advocating for the case. And uh, so they can come in 
either way. And we all get to work on them together, which is so important when you're trying to go to ground on these issues of, of physical discomfort that, mm-hmm. that it's so often involved in, in behavior problems of horses. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's perfect. So I know you, uh, you've sent me and Jessica a list of your, some of your five most recent cases. So why don't we start with case number one? All right. Well, these were cases. This is what I did yesterday, these mm-hmm. five cases. So um, I, this is the order in which they were done. And um, the first uh, work that I did yesterday morning was with a 24-hour video behavior evaluation, which we do many of these, sometimes four or five per week. Um, we may even sometimes have three going at once, but these are evaluations to assist the hospital clinicians in formulating uh, a diagnostic strategy so that they can take these uh, behavior problems or whatever is wrong with the horse, try to figure out how to best spend the available diagnostic dollars and to get get to the, the answer quickest. And what is a 24-hour video behavior evaluation? Like, like so what does that, yeah. On Thursday... I set up a video uh, on the stall of the horse in question, and it runs continuously for 24 hours. And then I evaluate that mostly in fast forward. Yeah. It's, it's a very um, useful way to pick up on subtle behaviors that, that um, even if you were standing outside the stall, you might not realize how how frequently they're happening. Mm-hmm. Um, we obtain this 24 hour video and then I watch it through in fast forward. And um, we have a, a standard uh, format for reporting the results. Sometimes the clinicians want me to look at this with no history because they want fresh eyes to say, do you see, see anything about how this horse moves, its behavior pattern, that sort of thing. And sometimes they will tell me specifics. So, so this horse yesterday was a thoroughbred yearling gelding that had presented to the hospital, to the sports medicine and cardiology section because it had persistent high heart rate called tachycardia. So it, it, its heart rate never went down to normal. And in fact, it was almost scary high and it had been away for weeks. So uh, the cardiac people took the lead on that and um, did a ultrasound evaluation. They also put on a 24 hour heart monitor to see if they could pick up any problems with the heart and did an exercise test um, all of the things that they would do as a basic exam, and they found nothing significant that would explain the fast heart rate. And then they also, sports medicine then did a basic, simple musculoskeletal exam looking for potential pain because pain can cause elevated heart rate in horses, particularly young horses. So they also found nothing remarkable. So they referred it to the medicine and neurology group um, to join the team for a basic exam, which was also unremarkable. So it had no obvious neurologic signs that might explain why it had a, uh, nerv- a n- nervous system control problem, let's say, with, with the heart rate. But that was a very basic exam. And as, as our neurologist often does, we work together all the time on these behavior cases. It's usually not something as physical as tachycardia, but she knows the value of these 24-hour evaluations. Mm -hmm. So she recommended that before they spent any more money, went on to any further uh, diagnostics that get to be very expensive (laughs) to do this simple video evaluation. 
I see. So the source came in, like they did a pretty, pretty, very reasonable workup. They right. found nothing and they're like, okay, we're going to stop here. Right. We got to do the video console and just see like, right. Okay. Because they also were thinking that, you know, could this horse be so psychologically stressed out that it would have a continuously high heart rate, which is all of us know that that's, we've never heard of that before. Yeah. But that was also on their mind. Is there something you, you know, this video evaluation that I do also uh, gives a, a report on the, the animal's general temperament over that period and its reactivity and those sorts of things. So um, mm -hmm. for all those reasons, um, I sat down and went through the 24 hour video first thing yesterday. So it was very interesting. Uh, <sighs> the finding this, this horse had, it's a little bit difficult to explain. Um, but um, when a, when a animal, a human, anybody has a rise in sympathetic tone in the nervous system, that means like they're get a higher level of excitement or alertness or startle or whatever. A good example is like you're driving down the road and you see red lights flashing behind you and you go, oh, sugar, I'm going 10 miles over. Yeah. And, and the car goes right on by you and you go like, oh gosh. And, and you often will get itchy and you'll reach up and itch your neck. Usually it's, it's as you're, when you've had a rise in sympathetic tone and it backs off to parasympathetic, that's when you start to salivate again. So you'll often kind of lick your lips and swallow and horses do exactly that. Um, and so <clears throat> whenever this, this animal, this young horse had anything that increased his alertness, he had like a very extended, very dramatic version of that where he wow. was just almost like going crazy, itching everywhere. <laughs> and it, it would go on for many minutes, which it usually just is like momentary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, that's where we are with the case in okay. terms of it was very abnormal. The neurologist now is trying to figure out whether he doesn't seem to have any condition that should make him itchy like a, a derm. Mm -hmm. a, a, like an allergy or anything. And it was everywhere. He was, there were like every, every part that he could reach with any limb or with his muzzle, he was itching. So now the neurologist is back to thinking there mm -hmm. is something nervous control, which also could be involved with heart rate. And as it turns out in the history, this horse had a viral disease shortly before this, the onset of this tachycardia ah. that was just, you know, he got over it and uh, they had, you know, something run through the barn and they had other animals that had it and got over it. So it's, it's just, uh, we're in that stage of trying to figure it out, but my work is done in terms of that. I was able to let them know something that they would have not appreciated or put that together of why if they had seen itchy episodes without that 24 hour monitoring, you wouldn't realize that they were always set off by that sympathetic surge. So very interesting. Everybody's pretty fascinated with the case. And I probably will see him again because they're going to, in the short term, they're going to try to give him some medications to try to give him some relief from that. And mm -hmm. sometimes do a, another round to, to uh, evaluate the effect. I love that they use you for that because 
I can appreciate the fact that you have this extensive knowledge of a typical ethological, you know, the repertoire for a horse, basically, of like what is normal and what is not, and that you were able to watch this video and be like, nope, 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 not normal. Mm -mm." Right. And, and not really behavioral. His, you know, I've never seen anything like that with just that a horse was over reactive psychologically to his environment. That was a very specific link with that moment of what we call sympathetic surge resolution, which is when it switches back to, thank goodness. And so just out of curiosity, for the things in the environment, were you able at all to identify, like, you know, were there, were there sounds that you could hear? Or I'm just, I'm a little curious between like the idea of, of knowing, you know, something in the environment happened that I can, you know, see or hear on the video versus like maybe something internally like you know um spinal cord pain or something like that these were uh the uh events that precipitated these uh sort of exaggerated episodes were things like a clinician going into the stall to do a physical exam Mm. and leave so it was a heightened level of arousal and they went away um, things like the vacuum cleaner coming down the aisle, which many of our horses react to, and they have this normal, uh, you know, a few licks of their lip and, you know, maybe rub their face on their foreleg once or twice, and then it's over, where he just went on and on and on. Wow, poor guy. Okay, that's fascinating. Um, I wish you knew the answer. Like, I wish you knew what, what the outcome was, but maybe maybe if you're willing and you find, you do find out, let us know and we'll post it on the page, but all right. Cause that's interesting. All right. Um, so let's go to, let's go to case number two then. So after that, we had planned to have a little meeting, one of those, what went well, even better yet discussions with our own staff in regard to two recent stallions who had been into the clinic for reproduction reasons, actually for, for um, breeding and or getting them started for breeding and semen collection. And we have a new, um, relatively new stallion handler and a more experienced professional stallion handler who works on the team. And they had requested that we sit down and go over the particular challenges they had. And um, we videotape everything in the breeding shed. So, and I hadn't been present for all of the sessions for these stallions, and they wanted to go over things and ask advice on what they might do better. And, and they had a couple moments where things weren't going well, and they had questions about that. So, what does not going well look like? Well, um, so in, in one instance, the uh, stallion was obviously excited enough to mount the, the mare and to proceed, but he wasn't. And he was just getting more and more frustrated. And they do because this... Um, this stallion in particular had just come from finishing up his racing career uh, the weekend before. And he had, uh, he was a bit of an older stallion to be starting breeding. He, he uh, and, and those stallions have often been discouraged big time for showing sexual behavior in the racing mm-hmm. situation. So they often get to this point of conflict. Like I really want to do this, it's going to be okay. So there's different little tips we can do to, to push them over the edge, like just sort of abandon their worries. And um, a lot of those are just very simple handling things. For example, there's a, a mounting invitation gesture that mares do under natural conditions. If they're just out free, free in a field or in, you know, or, you know, wild horses, 
where when the mare is really receptive, she will um, lift up one foreleg and turn her head back towards the stallion, which is kind of the universal quadruped symbol. Like I'm not going anywhere and I'm not going to kick you. Oh. And so when we're handling stallions, our, our newer stallion handler had not really, we've talked about it before, but she hadn't really seen it done. And she was the stallion handler in that moment, the experienced stallion handler who was handling the stallion and the other, the assistant who was handing the mayor, the newer assistant was, he was trying, the stallion handler was trying to tell her to do that. But in the moment, she didn't quite understand. It's kind of like a ballet when you're, when you're handling mm-hmm. this. And if you were just to turn them loose in the pasture, they would probably be just fine. But um, these very valuable horses, it's not the usual. Um, you would usually not get permission to do that because Got it. They, they could get hurt. And then there was okay. another stallion, a very interesting stallion who is, uh, this is a really fascinating behavior problem. And uh, people can read about it. Our, all of our publications are on um, my university website. They're all there for free to look at or download. And um, this other stallion was an orphan. And orphan stallions have can develop um, what we think of as overly human bonded, especially if they're bottle fed by humans. And their behavior in a nutshell is like they, it's as if they interact with you as if you were a horse. <laughs> and so they're quick to do play fighting and, you know, just um, they don't respect um, your size and, and uh, that you're a different species. So you can very, very dangerous, right? You can easily trigger some reactions that are very dangerous. And particularly in the breeding situation, um, it's, they seem to be particularly vulnerable when they're, they're increased, um, state of general excitement and as, especially a beginner doesn't quite know what he's supposed to do to begin with. And, you know, he might quickly turn and mount the handler, or if you try to guide him, he can be perceived, it's their behavior suggests that they perceive you as a competing male. And so oh. lunge, lunge at, you know, it's, so we had some, um, of that with that stallion. And um, so we, we just uh, spent some time going over how to, you know, to set it up to be the safest. And, and uh, yeah, so that was, that was a really good um, sit down in the air conditioning. It was really boiling hot here yesterday. So it was nice to, to be able to sit down. And again, it was more of a teaching discussion um, moment, but very valuable work in a situation like this. So from a, from a behavioral perspective, if you've got horses, sounds like both of these horses, you know, they had a job to do and they had never done it before or had been dissuaded from doing it before. Do you guys do any sort of like either, I don't know, training to get them comfortable with like the environment and some of the things that you're going to do to them? Uh, you know, how do you set them up for success in that way? We like to do that, and we we have protocols, general protocols, and uh, we we our handlers train to be able to do those things. But in reality, for example, the um, race stallion was just off the track and and route to a distant state, and they needed to evaluate his breeding potential. Like um, now, like on the truck was parking lot waiting. Oh my gosh. And he was headed, headed to Florida. So, um, 
they're, you know, they just needed to get him started enough that they could look at um, his sperm quality and, and uh, give an assessment to the, you know, the parties involved. He might've even been in the process of being sold. I'm not sure, but um, that happens. And so the, the pressure is, is on and it doesn't always work. And it sometimes mm-hmm. it's our recommendation that this is not the best thing for this, this horse or his future or your bottom line to, you know, to rush things. But um, we've gotten pretty good at, at getting it done with, without feeling like we're setting them back or making a big mistake. Mm-hmm. So then en- we end up <laughs> attracting uh, a lot of referrals for that reason, because we've, uh, we've had such a well-trained group here um, at Penn who have worked with stallions um, so well for many decades. So Nice. Very nice. So Jessica, before we go into number three, do you have any questions on that one? Yeah, it just kind of reminds me of all the work that like Damian did on the fighting fish ages ago, um, where, you know, I mean, definitely not the same high stake caliber here, but um, where he was looking at influencing the natural mating behaviors where you could pretty much condition a male beta to not approach female and then what it took to teach him to get back in there. Um, And so it was was just, it's just really interesting because I have a very strong comparative background. And so when you hear things like, yeah, so the same thing they did in the fish is what they're doing with these high dollar stallions and in a barn. So it's, it's really, really, I always find it exciting to hear things like that. We also back doing um, the NIH work and, and subsequent work on, on um, drugs, we, we actually have a toolbox full of things that we can use. But uh-huh. one of the one of the cool things is that often just doing something like turning that mare's head back and mm-hmm. allowing her to lift that foreleg as she would naturally is the push button, and you don't have to worry about all the side effects and you know controlled drug <laughs> situation, yeah. whatever. But uh, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean that that really comes back to again your 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 team's expertise in mm-hmm. the ethology of these animals because if you didn't know that that was a thing, you might be resorting to these drugs un- totally unnecessarily. And th- and that's yeah. a big problem in 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 this uh, area of veterinary medicine that that or people don't haven't used them before, aren't comfortable um, with those. Even if they read about it, they're like they can hardly believe how it would work. <laughs> so they often, often go to a drug because they, you know, they, it's just human nature to think, well, that ought to fix it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. And I need it to work. Yeah. 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 And they do, um, you know, how you were saying is waiting for that natural signal or even conditioning the natural signal into the mayor to help, you know, facilitate the progress. Um, Again, comparatively, I mean, we can do that with dogs too that are having difficulty. You can condition them to give play bows on command. Mm-hmm. And so you're artificially starting the relationship, but you're starting it on a good foot. Um, and that's one of the challenges that people who work with cats have is that there's no soliciting come approach me now signal that cats tend to have outside of kind of a soft tail and then just not straight out attacking you, but that could change any, any second. Oh, geez. Oh, oh, I feel bad for the show cats then, because that sounds like it makes it uh, significantly more challenging. Show cats have a wonderful life. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. So let's, uh, let's go to, uh, to story number three. 
Okay, so um, after that meeting, the next thing I did was um, a consult with a um, pretty active um, website builder for uh, a magazine called The Horse. It's the main general um, breed, all horses, all disciplines magazine, and it's the partner of the American Association of Equine Practitioners. So um, I serve on their um, editorial board and, and for a long time have uh, done questions, you know, answered questions uh, that their writers sent in. But this was kind of an emergency consult regarding this situation last week at the Olympics, where mm-hmm. pentathlon horse in particular um, had a meltdown of sorts, and uh, it ended up with the coach for the team being expelled from the Olympics and. The, the person who rode this was riding this horse in jumping in the jumping. Uh, the pentathlon has these five events. And one of them is similar to what you would call stadium jumping in horses, which is they're in an arena and they have these series of jumps that they have to do and it's timed. And so uh, the person riding the horse was leading the whole pentathlon at this point was way ahead. And she was totally eliminated from, from, a chance of uh, metal or, or doing anything uh, other than rock bottom because she got timed out. And, and to be clear though, like this is not her horse. If I recall these, and I, I love the Olympics. Like I watch them religiously, like everything I possibly can. Um, if I recall, like these are sort of, these horses belong to the Olympics basically, and they are randomly assigned to riders. So she knows nothing about this horse. Right. And that's part of, that was part of the, public outcry was that this the whole concept of using a horse in a sport um, in a way that would never be done in in the rest of well in most of the rest of mm-hmm, right sports um, where you just jump on this horse and and you've never ridden it before you've never met the horse before and the horses are this they're sourced in different ways but they're they're not meant to be necessarily well-trained at jumping. <laughs> and part of the, the, as I understand it, as much as I can learn about it, is part of the skill is to be able to take a horse like this and get them over the jumps. And it's, it's expected that it's those, those challenges of not knowing the horse and that the horse necessarily not skilled at this type of jumping, but it's, that's what a modern pentathlete should be able to do, which is, it has been questioned for, for the last few Olympics, whether oh. this was fair to the horse. So yeah. the, um, the reason for the consult was that um, this editor wanted to talk about the specific, with were claims that the horse was in pain and in social media and, and even in mainstream, um, there were lots of different funny things said. I mean, things said by the media that that um, this editor had questions about. But one of the focuses was, if I were to, did I see the, the round? And in fact, by accident that day that it was being broadcast, I saw it, and I, it, I was doing something else, and it caught my eye, and I was like, what the. And then right away, I got online and <clears throat> went over, over and over again. Like, what is going on? Why isn't somebody stopping this? Because this horse was in serious stress and it was very 
dangerous. It, it just was crashing through things. It was mm-hmm. so it was awful. Yeah. So um, some of the specific qu- questions were: Could I? Um, could I, I? What was my thought about? Did it look physically painful or or just psychologically stressed? So um, we talked about the different signs of of pain, and to me it's very hard to separate those two um, in that situation, but the Mm -hmm. horse did seem to have the classic signs of serious mouth pain. So we went over those and um, you know, it, it, it's the way it held its head and backing away and kind of head high, but focusing down towards its mouth, um, different uh, aspects to its facial expression. So, and uh, I tried to explain, it, it took a while to try to explain why it's so difficult to separate psychological stress mm-hmm. from physical pain in that situation where the horse is being, it looked, you know, it could just be so crazily confused right. by this rider that it is showing pay behavior that could be consistent with, with physical pain. Anyway, that was it. And you can, you can, um, if you Google um, thehorse.com, you'll see what she ended up writing. Okay. Well, I think what we'll do is we'll just link to it on this page. <laughs> okay. It had to be done like that's, and I like to help these folks where I can because often they they can get going in a direction that um, is not consistent with the scientific understanding of behavior. So. Oh, like that. Was it the New York Times article with uh, with the dog this week like that? I see oh, you. that. Right. <laughs> yes. I was actually, I was actually going to ask about that because um, as you've been talking, I kind of pulled up, I've tried to pull up some video just to take a look at it. Cause you're talking about, you know, the obvious mouth pain and, and some of the um, signs from the horse and yeah, you're 100% right. Like my knowledge of horses is introductory level. It's like the I'm from Texas, so what all Texans come equipped with as far as horse knowledge, that's what I have. Um, well, but very it's interesting. interestingly, by the time this editor, I said, well, let's pull up some video and I'll go over it with you. And she said it actually, all of the video had been taken down and that she was unable to get more than just like a, you know, a couple seconds clip at a time. And she had even called NBC Sports <laughs> She's pretty yeah, well. there's not a lot. It's like it's a it's a link of stills is kind of what I've been able to find. There was a section of video where you see the trainer kind of punch the horse um, in the back there. But the thing that they're really focusing on is also the emotional expression of the rider as well. Because you can you can clearly see this is not a team working together. You know, I think the rider was feeling the horse's distress. The horse was clearly having a terrible time. Um, and it, it's, it's heartbreaking for, I think for both. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such beings a sad in this. situation. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, to not be able to say, Hey, let's stop. I think, you know, this maybe not right on the subject of um, cab behavior as well, but sort of just the, these Olympics in general, where it was, kind of highlighted, you know, when an athlete is not feeling or mentally ready to perform, there should be a lot more support. And I think that that goes double for these sports that involve horses and and non-human competitors, where 
you know, whether it's the show jumping or this pentathlon or whatever it is, when you're working with another animal, like, you know, the welfare issues should be right there up at the front. The good part about as sad as it is, I think it's people are talking about it. And Mm -hmm. there's there's been some very thoughtful pieces about it. And so I think, I think some good can come from it. And I understand that the horse is okay. Well, the owner of the horse says that it's okay. And um, there's a lot of questions and that's what um, this editor focused on. Like, like um, who looks at these horses and who makes yeah. sure this horse had trouble in the previous, in a previous, that each horse gets two different riders as well. So, and the horse had had difficulties and didn't complete the first with its first rider. And uh, so the questions were, well, was that horse examined in between <laughs> to make sure that there wasn't something wrong with the horse? So, yeah. So anyway, it's more yeah. of a welfare issue than a behavior issue. But as a behaviorist, I was asked, we've recently published what's called the uh, equine discomfort ethogram, which is. A yeah, category. that's an amazing tool. Right. And so, uh, and this, um, online and paper magazine had had uh, written a little article about that so they they felt that it would be um, good to have comment from from a behaviorist who was involved in the ethogram very cool very timely extremely timely so um okay i know uh, i know we're getting sort of near the end of time but we've got two more to go so let's go for um your fourth consult of the day so the last two uh, consults that I did yesterday were follow-ups on um, uh, hospital cases that um, we had had in the hospital, one that had been a year ago and one that had just been actually in June and July. So the June and July horse was a six-year-old gelding um, that had been imported a year ago and had um, come to this owner and trainer and started working, being worked by them in uh, January of this year. And everything had been going fine. And then he had um, started developing aggression whenever he was around other horses. So if he came close to a horse in the ring uh, for schooling, he would uh, lunge at them or rear. And so they had to work him without other horses in the arena. And Hmm. they had been working with their veterinarian to try to, they were thinking perhaps sometimes he had, he had been castrated right before being um, imported. And sometimes there's a little remnant of testicle that's, you know, snipped and left, or sometimes when a horse is castrated, they only have one scrotal testicle. So they have one abdominal testicle. And most veterinarians would be very forthright about that and advise the owners to have that that has to be surgically removed rather, you know, under general anesthesia, if it's in the abdomen, but you don't want to leave a a testicle in the abdomen because it can still produce testosterone. They won't be fertile, but um, anyway, Mm -hmm. um, they started exploring those avenues. And um, I got involved with that because I have done quite a bit of um, work on, on this type of case. And so we were working long distance but then the horse also started doing behavior that's somewhat like tail chasing in dogs where it, it just oh. keeps spinning in circles. And it's um, uh, been given the name self-mutilation because sometimes they actually do bite at their flank um, when they're spinning. And there's 
three or four types of it. Um, there's a nice uh, summary paper on our website uh, about the different types. But in any case, um, the horse came in uh, for evaluation of that and started with the 24-hour video. Mm -hmm. And um, we found that he was having many minor episodes of what looked like frank physical pain. Yeah. And he was pointing right at the castration site. And we've had many cases in the past where there's a seemingly minor and maybe even unnoticed um, complication of either a little abscess or an infection or an adhesion um, that causes discomfort in the groin. And that's exactly what it looked like to me. And so we had to work that up and we did an extensive workup and couldn't find anything that the clinicians were confident could be causing that behavior. So we had an extended workup where we put him on pain medication, including we did a three-day trial with an epidural morphine um, catheter. So he was getting a constant infusion of morphine just specifically to the nerves to that region because they didn't want to do exploratory surgery until they were really sure because it was a big warm blood horse and there's a lot of risk of general anesthesia for a big horse of that size. So um, anyway, bottom line is um, one of our repro clinicians was pretty sure she could feel some abnormal tissue along the spermatic cord just as it goes through what's called the inguinal ring, which where it leaves the abdomen and would go into the scrotal area. And sure enough, that was the problem. They corrected it surgically. And um, this, he went home uh, about a month ago, and this was his one month follow-up call. I knew because they kept emailing me all along that he was, <laughs> he was completely free of his his discomfort behavior. Now, why the interesting thing, and we, and another thing, this you, you just learn this from experience, but that spermatic cord is what would normally contract and pull the testicle up close to the abdomen whenever the horse approaches a social situation. And I know that from working with stallions that they do that. And that cord is still functional after the testicle is no longer there. But this cord was actually kind of... Uh, attached where it had become infected, it, it sort of attached itself. And so every time he would approach another horse, even in the hospital, when a horse would walk by, it would, he would have this flinching, he actually would also give out a little vocalization like, ah, and then start this going at his groin spinning and kicking out like he was very uncomfortable. So that explains why that sudden onset of aggression when coming near other horses. So so let me ask you about that real quick, because it sounds like you guys got in there pretty quickly. You know, you, you identified the issue, you fixed it, you sent him home and the behavior like just went away, which is superb. But what do you think would have happened if, you know, this, this trainer and this owner had said, well, you know, gee, it's new aggression. Like we're going to work on the aggression. And, you know, they worked on that for six months until they got sick of it and then finally came to you. Like what, what are the potential behavioral differences if essentially they had waited a long time to come to you versus coming to you immediately? Well, we know from experience, that's usually what happens. Most often these are initially interpreted by caretakers as well as by veterinarians that this is a misbehavior. And there is actually Mm -hmm. a form of self-mutilation 
called that I, I gave it this name. It's uh, self-directed intermale aggression. And they, these, there are very few of these. I've only known a few in decades, but they will respond to greeting another horse by directing the usual nipping at the flank. Um, they direct it towards themselves and it can be set off by male odors. So if you just take the odor of another horse, you can, you can set it off. So um, it's often that if people do know about these different types of self-mutilation, it's very hard to, if, unless you've looked at a lot of these, to have a confident judgment as to whether it's that type or another. And there is, in these 24-hour videos, you can get really good clues because when a horse defecates, they are a, a stallion, but sometimes it's retained in, in castrated males, geldings, where uh, they defecate, they have a very stylistic spin around, sniff the feces, and then they may even defecate upon it again or uh, urinate on it. And it's, it's called elimination marking behavior. And this horse had none of that. Mm. And often in these ones that have self-directed intermale aggression, that will set off an episode. And he had none of those types of behaviors. So we have quite a long, I mean, it might sound oversimplified, you know, as I speak about it now, but it, it involves quite a very thoughtful, long list of things that they have or the behaviors that they show or they don't show that give us some confidence in making these, these judgments. <clears throat> nice. Okay. And then, um, and then you said you also had a, a the fifth case. Um, yeah, that, yeah. that was also a very simple follow-up um, on a, a young horse that came to us in 2020 with very serious um, needle stick aversions. And he had gotten, he was a big horse, even as a yearling. And he had um, essentially been inadvertently trained to rear and lunge towards anyone who came near his neck. So we had uh, worked with him in-house for a week and then uh, trained the uh, owner on how to continue at home. We, this is a horse that's in our own um, field service practice, our own clinicians who go out in the field. And so they wanted to, uh, they were willing to be trained in how to, to um, follow a procedure. We went to, with him, we went to what's with zoo animals now is called um, cooperative care or protected contact where the horse is at liberty mm -hmm. behind a barrier and you, the payoff is that you very nicely time your treats and get them, they can leave at any time. Mm -hmm. You and, and also to specifically avoid the triggers to people. Um, the owner was quite knowledgeable about behavior. And um, she had done quite a bit of um, trying to reach rehab the horse herself and had made some strides. But it seemed that whenever there was a second person there, it triggered this and, and it, the horse didn't even look fearful at this point. It was just almost like a trained reaction. So, and it was very nice horse, very pleasant horse otherwise. So um, we had the various steps we had to go through was then to get him comfortable with two people mm -hmm. and uh, try to eliminate the, the other triggers as much as possible. And then use things like topical lidocaine to make and start with very small needles and we did his care. We were able, in the week that he was with us, we were able to get his care done, his annual vaccinations and his blood tests that he needed. Um, and so she had about six months that, um, unless some emergency came up, um, that she could continue to work with them. And they'd had a little setback because uh, a different 
veterinarian came out um, for uh, his annual work this spring and um, was unable to follow the protocol and you know how, how things go the owner got very upset and so we had to just regroup and get back on it and so this mm-hmm. this was um, she had some a whole list of specific questions and and wanting advice on how to go with things so that's what we spent some time on yesterday I have a quick question on the on the protocol that you use for these injection behaviors you know I've I've seen maybe two different ways to think of how the final process works in terms of whether whether you signal to the animal whether the injection is coming. So I, one way is I've heard people say, um, well, you you know you train it, you train the animal to like put its neck up against the you know the fence or the barrier or what have you, and then you do you do like a you know you touch it with your finger and you give them a, like the treat or the re, whatever your reinforcer is, and then you you know you touch it again, you give them the reinforcer, and then you touch them like six times, and the horse never knows which of those six times is going to be the needle or like you you, know, you tap the skin a little bit. Um, and then the other uh, option I've heard is like you set it up and the horse, you know, is signaled the injection is coming. You do it once uh, and then you give them the reinforcer. So one is like you kind of make the, the you offer several reinforcers and then the punisher essentially is random. And then one is there's only one, um, I don't know, how you, one setup and the horse, it's not random. The horse knows it's coming. So I guess. When you guys set this up, do you have thoughts about, I guess, how do you set it up in that way? Well, I've done both ways. Mm-hmm. It depends which way I go often depends on what the specific avoidance behaviors are and how, how much time we have to get this horse going and getting a plan. And I, my, my first go-to is to not try to trick or hide mm-hmm. or but to just take all of those steps, those preamble steps mm-hmm. that previously were triggering the learned avoidance behavior and make them a positive, change the valence from negative to positive mm-hmm. trigger. So here's the syringe, here's the treat. Here's the syringe, here's the treat. Now I'm going to put my hand and the syringe on your neck. Here's the treat, you know, just yep. build, build, build. And, and because people are not set, I really don't like to, get these horses on such a bizarre uh, non-mainstream technique because these horses don't stay with the same owners and same veterinarians. Uh, I like to get them so that the usual ordinary thing is good. Got it. This this horse really, when when we eventually stuck this horse, this actual stick was not the problem. It was very much like a circus trained horse, you know, because it had, you know, people had fought with it. And it just was very quick to go up in the air and get released. So, and it was so dangerous that you couldn't ride it out to the point where the horse could, you could learn that he didn't even mind the needle stick. We're still going and, and recommending that they go with the finest needle possible and to use Mm -hmm. the lidocaine so that if something does go wrong, that doesn't become the case that he, he, resents the actual stick but um so i have a i have i have something i have to add in here i hope you'll both forgive me when i say this so it sounds like because the horse didn't actually mind the needle he was a one stick pony but um (laughs) you couldn't stop yourself on that one (laughs) Uh, 
Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm sorry. You have to do more training, Mindy. <laughs> I never get jokes and I'm not a funny person. So like that delights me that that just came out. <laughs> um, but so I, I love what you just said about, about setting the horse up so that it can react in an appropriate way across the situation that's going to be most consistent across a variety of different owners and vets. Um, and then you set them up for like, this is how we're going to do it. You know exactly when the poke is going to come and I'm going to reward you so heavily that it's worth it. I think the reason I've heard, or the reason I've been concerned a little bit about that is if you have, let's say the horse really had an issue with that stick. Like it was just, for some reason, the, the needle was just highly aversive. Um, I think the concern would be, could your reinforcer be powerful enough to compete with that? And it sounds like if it wasn't, then you would, you would go to different methodology. Well, and I, I should be very uh, forthright. It's, it's not, ex in a case like this, it's not exactly a reinforcer. We actually give them the mother load as a distractor. Oh, sure. Of course. Sure. And so it's, it's, uh, we try to, and we, we work very hard to find the highest level of, um, you know, what, what they like the most, like a horse I was working with recently, I couldn't, I've never fed a horse this before, but the owner told me that he was crazy about peanuts in the shell. <laughs> well, I actually had to step aside and <laughs> Google <laughs> whether it was safe for horses peanuts <laughs> in the shell. She said she fed him to him all the time, but I was going to be feeding him probably 35 peanuts over the course of a, you know, five minute session. <laughs> and, uh, but um, we've tried, and he was crazy about the, he was crazy about the peanuts. And, and we do things like put them in a very small little rubber pan. Like it's a, a, it's not a horse feed pan. It's more like a dog feed pan. And it's so that they can hardly get their muzzle in to retrieve the treat. And they, so they're really working hard to get that treat. So it's even a more of a distractor. So we'll do that for the first mm -hmm. few sticks. And then we want to make it less and less of a distractor, right? Because mm -hmm. We can't count on the fact that, you know, right. trust that future, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll have a pan and can do that. But we, we, you know, nurse them along that way. And uh, also with the protected contact with this horse, it made all the difference in the world. Because if he, I told you, I've been here for 40 years, so I'm not as, as uh, good on my feet as I used to be. <laughs> and working with a horse of that size in a 12 by 12 stall like if he just even lunged slightly, you know, he could wipe me off my feet. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, the protected contact, which I've only started using in a serious way and recommending to clients within the last few years, and it's made all the difference. And it did take me a while to appreciate how, how much more relaxed those horses are if you, you know, and how much more willing they are to, to stay with you. I was thinking mm -hmm. uh, this horse is just going to keep, you know, come to the stall guard on the door and go away come back they mm -hmm. they can get away they d don't seem to need to go away <laughs> so I think that's so smart like why put people or the horse frankly in the position when you don't need to so I love that you started doing that it's made a, oh. it's made a big difference for us absolutely so so Sue I know you've gone through five really wonderful cases um your, your days sound fascinating although slightly dangerous um and I like I said I know that there are people out there because I've been asked, even though I, I don't work with horses, like, how do I get into this field? You know, how do I, um, how do I become an expert in this area? You've talked a little bit about how you got here and you know, what you do on a daily basis. So I guess my last question for you would be, if there's some, you know, 
not even young person, if there's some person out there who wants to go out and do this, what's your, what's your best advice for them? Well, I would, I would, I think the best advice is to try to get a, a intern experience with somebody who's doing it already, because, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the clinician knowledge is, is not written, <laughs> written down anywhere or, or taught in any, any formal educational program. So um, I think working with someone, um, I've, the, the folks that um, I know who have been quite successful doing this type of thing um, did internships and also uh, learn as much as they can about the natural behavior of horses so that they can, um, you know, understand what, what is likely a behavior problem and what is just a natural behavior gone wrong in a domestic situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Yeah. I love it. Okay. Jessica, do you have any additional questions before, uh, before we thank Sue? Oh, so many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's wonderful. And like the, um, you know, the training with the needle stick and the blood draws and all that. Um, I've done, I've done some work with some animals that are, you know, super dangerous. I've worked with lions and tigers in that scenario as well. And I, and Mindy, when you were asking, you know, do you kind of bury the stick in the, in the training? And what I've found, especially with cats and and cats kind of respond differently to this type of training than dogs. And, And so I'm glad you asked it because I was wondering how horses respond as well, but with cats, no, you get right to it. You, you, and if you don't do the stick, then all that lead up training it flies out the window. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got to get, um, in fact, we started with, you know, like little tiny, like taking your nails and kind of touching the skin. So it, they feel something sharp, definitely not painful, not breaking the mm-hmm. skin, not causing any, not causing any bruising or anything. You're not trying to be mean. It's just like, Hey, sometimes something sharp comes in there. Um, and without that, then all that desensitizing work just doesn't work. Um, the, the needle stick is too shocking. And so if you are working with an animal that's just like, you know, I do not like needles. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the thing you got to work on, not all the rigmarole coming up to it. But uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, it's interesting. The species difference is there. Yeah. That's one of those that it's not the same with everything you're working with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I've never tried to train um, apes or monkeys, but I would assume that they're more tolerant of the whole, oh, let's try again. Is this the one without it? Is this the one with it? Okay, then the next one's free. So let's keep going, you know, so. <laughs> Empirical questions. Somebody should find out, right? Yeah. But right. thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, like I said, we don't, we don't have that many horse experts on the show, which is, which is pretty sad. And I feel like you've been an incredible representative of, of behavior experts in that particular area. So thank you. Great. Yeah, thank Thanks. You. Good to talk to you guys.